All right. You turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 43. We're going to kind of continue on this journey here through Joseph's life, and we're just going to look at a portion of it today. So Genesis 43 starts off, and the famine was sore in the land. Verse number two, and it came to pass when they had eaten up the corn, which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said unto them, go again, buy us a little food. And Judah spake unto him, saying, the man did solemnly protest unto us, saying, you shall not see my face except your brother be with you. If thou wilt send our brother with us, we will go down and buy thee food. But if thou wilt not send him, we will not go down. For the man said unto us, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. And Israel said, Wherefore dealt ye so ill with me, as to tell the man whether he had yet a brother? And they said, The man asked us straightly of our state and our kindred, saying, Is your father yet alive? Have you another brother? And we told him, According to the tenor of these words, could we certainly know that he would say, Bring your brother down. And Judah said unto Israel, his father, send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and thou and also our little ones. And verse number nine, I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him, if I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee. Then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned the second time. And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so, now do this. Take of the best of the fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds, and take double money in your hand. And the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again in your hand. For adventure, it was an oversight. Take also your brother, and arise, go again unto the man, and God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may send away your brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. All right? All right, so Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they conspired to kill him. They had thrown him in a pit with the intention of leaving him there to starve to death. And when they saw merchants heading toward Egypt, they sold Joseph to them for 20 pieces of silver. And as far as they knew, Joseph was dead. God was with Joseph while he was in Egypt and had ultimately made the second. And God had ultimately made him the second to Pharaoh in ruling over Egypt. And because there was a great famine throughout the region, Joseph's brothers had come to Egypt to buy grain for their families. And when they did, Joseph inquired and he asked about if they had another brother because he knew of Benjamin. But he asked if they had another brother, but Benjamin had been left behind. Jacob had already lost Joseph. Joseph was, uh, even though he wasn't the firstborn, he was Jacob's prize. He was Jacob's son. And uh, he didn't want to lose Benjamin also. So when the brothers went to Egypt, Benjamin stayed with him. And Joseph told them that they were spies who had come to spy out the land. Joseph began to test them. He began to try them. 
And he began to put them through a trial. And, you know, God will do that to us, too, when he wants to show you what's been going wrong in your life. What, what's wrong? We'll have to recon. A lot of times we'll have to confront some sin or we'll have to confront something from our past that separated us from him. And uh, he'll cause us to go through it again. And this is what Joseph was doing to them. So they go home and Simeon is left in prison. And while they're home, Jacob said, no, Benjamin can't go back. But finally, they get so hungry, they get to the point of starvation. And Jacob's like, go back to Egypt. And they said, we can't go back without our brother. He said, we were spies. And Jacob finally relents because there's no food. He said, well, take Benjamin. And uh, Judah says that he'll be a surety for Benjamin, that he will give himself for Benjamin if necessary. When his brothers came, they didn't recognize him. It had been 21 years since they had sold him, and he was now 38 years old. Joseph, however, recognized his brothers but did not reveal himself to them. He accused them of being the spies and coming to Egypt for the purpose of spying. They insisted they were all brothers, the sons of one man, that one of their brothers was at home with their father, and the other brother had died. Joseph kept one of them in prison and told them that the only way they could prove that they were speaking the truth was to bring their younger brother the next time they came to Egypt. And the story returns to Egypt and focuses on Joseph's plans. Because when they come back, Joseph begins to show them Mercy and grace, but it's something that they don't even understand what's happening to them. Look at, uh, you can see eight steps that Joseph, in Joseph's planned dealings with his brethren. First, we see that he gives them an undeserved feast. Look in Genesis chapter 43, verses 16 and 17. It says, and when Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the ruler of his house, bring these men home and slay and make ready for these men shall die with me at noon. And when Joseph, uh, and when, so when Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the ruler of his house, bring these men home and slay and make ready for these men shall die with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph bade, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. So we see that they're invited to a feast. Now, you keep in mind, these are, these are men who have lived in the wilds. These are the men that when they walked into Egypt and they saw the great pyramids and they saw the statues, they were out of their element. And they're surrounded by all the grandeur of Egypt as they go in. And they're invited in by the man who's second to Pharaoh because they don't know him. And they're invited in to a feast, a great feast. A couple things to notice about the feast. It was a prepared feast, number one. They came for a little food, and now they got a feast being prepared for them. They did nothing to earn it. They were nobody in the eyes of the Egyptian kingdom. They stood in line along with everyone else and expected to be no differently treated than anyone else. However, little did they realize the importance of their relationship to Joseph. There's, going to be, there's a feast that's going to be prepared for us one day. We'll be able to sit with Jesus up in heaven. Amen. A feast like we've never seen. 
Joseph had the feast prepared, but he did it with the intent to test them. He wanted to see if anything had changed. And now they brought Benjamin to him. He would see how they treated his little brother. He spread the feast. He bore its cost. He took care of the sacrifice upon which it was founded. He commissioned the ruler of his house to bring in the men. How much is this like the gospel? God prepared, you know, when Abraham was up on the mountain and Isaac's going up there with him. And Abraham's supposed to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Isaac says, Lord, here's the, he said, Father, here is the wood and here is the, here is the altar, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. Now we read that and we say, well, yeah, God was going to provide his own ram because we see what God did. But we see also how God provided himself. He provided his own son as a sacrifice at the altar. And he made the way. He spread the feast. He bore its cost. He took care of the sacrifice upon which it was founded. He commissioned the ruler of his house to bring in the men. So not only was it a prepared feast, it was precious. Food was precious in the land. They came to Egypt to buy food so they and their families wouldn't starve, and they they were not only eating but dining with Pharaoh's designated leader. Um, they were dining with a king. Now, Joseph was second to the king. Everyone had to do everything they said. But uh, they're, they're sitting at this feast, and when they, <laughs> they're, they're around all the royal opulence that there is to provide. It's a funny... I'm trying to picture this. But these, these guys walking into Egypt, and they're sitting at that table, and they're surrounded by all of this royal opulence. They've, they've ate on the ground. They've ate out in the wilds. But here they are at a table with Joseph in all the glory and grandeur of Egypt. You know, the day we get to heaven, it'll be like nothing we've ever seen. It'll be a glory like we, nothing we've ever seen. And to be able to sit at that table with the Lord... To be able to walk the streets of gold in heaven. We can, we can imagine the streets of gold. But we can't see them for ourselves until we get there. They had done nothing to deserve the privilege of being able to dine with an Egyptian leader who was second only to the king. Pharaoh had set it up when he, when he lifted up Joseph. He told Joseph, Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne shall I be greater than thou. Over in Genesis 41, when he lifted him up, he said only, only uh, he was lifted up to the throne and only Pharaoh was greater. When you look over in 1 Corinthians 15, you see how Jesus is put over all things. Yet the only thing that he's not put over is God. Verse 41, 41, And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off the ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vesture of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee, and he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. 
They'd done nothing to deserve the privilege of being able to dine with the Egyptian leader who was only second to the king. So there was the undeserved feast, and, when, uh, and then there's the unconcealed fear. When they had gone back, they had the coins in the mouths of the bag. The, the money that they had used to purchase the food, they had that in the mouth of the bag. And at this time, and give me a second, this is one of them days, I told you I'm running on energy drink and coffee. So I'm, I'm trying to walk through this, but it's hard to get dramatic about it. It's hard, to, it's hard for me to picture everything that's going on to put it together for you. But in fact, when they're here, they, they begin to get suspicious of the reasons that they're able to sit at this table because there's no reason in their mind why this would happen. Why would they be able to sit with this man who is a ruler over Egypt. And as they sit there, they begin to really worry about that money that they took back with them. Because when they were headed back the first time, they opened up their sacks, and there was the money that they had paid. And they were afraid that it was going to look like that they stole that money. And their conscience begins to weigh on them. But here's something about their attitude. Their first thought isn't, that maybe he gave this back to us out of the goodness of his heart. But these are Jacob's sons. These are the trickster's sons. <laughs> these are the ones that tricked a whole family of men and to get them circumcised and then killing them when they were recovering because of what they had done to their uh, sister Dinah. These are the ones who had conspired and got together because of the dreams that Joseph was having and I say, you know what? Let's just kill him. Dad will never know. And one said, no, no, let's go ahead and let's sell him off. We'll make some money. There's no sense killing him and not having anything. Let's get a little bit of money out of that. And they sold him for 20 pieces of silver. These are Jacob's sons. There's no reason for them to get to dine with the king. But when they're sitting there, the first thing that comes to mind is that he's trying to trick us. He's trying to get something against us. And, you know, that's the way people work in their minds. One of the things that I learned, and I learned it late in life, because I guess because I haven't been in charge of a lot of people, but I learned that you can't judge someone by what you would do in that situation. Does that make sense? I remember uh, when I first got out here and I was working on the census as a manager, and we had the classes, and one of the things they said was if somebody is late to class, just send them home because they had plenty of volunteers and stuff. There was one woman that came, and she said, well, I, I was up all night with my mom in the hospital. Sorry, I'm late. And I'm like, well, okay. And so she comes in, and she kind of dozes during class. Well, it's all right. It's not that hard, right? And as we went further and further along, what, what I came to realize was she, she just really didn't have any ethic at all. We ended up having to hunt her down just to get the materials back. You know, what you saw in the beginning was what she was at the end. <laughs> and, and I realized it's like, you can't, you can't decide what you would do about something 
and then put it on someone else. Because to the evil, all things are evil. To the to the somebody that's that thinks bad, to somebody that's a trickster like Jacob's sons, everything is a trick to them. And a lot of people are like that coming to the gospel. They can't see, they can't understand why God would send his son to die on the cross, why God would pay the penalty. It can't be that simple. There can't be that much grace in somebody. When you're talking about a holy father that loves you, and they've grown up their whole life, and they've had a father that hadn't loved them. They, they can't comprehend a father that would love them. Does that make sense to you? Amen. We're just kind of talking this morning. So look at uh, verse number 18. So verse 17, And the man did as Joseph bade, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Verse number 18, and as they walk in, it says, and the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And they said, because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time are we brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and our asses. And they came near to the steward of Joseph's house and they communed with him at the door of the house. And they, they're, they're going to cut this off at the bud. And they came near to the steward of Joseph's house, and they communed with him at the door of the house, and he and said, Oh, sir, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food. And it came to pass when we came to the end that we opened our sacks, and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, and we have brought it again in our hand. And other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. And he said, Peace be to you, fear not. Your God and the God of your father hath given you the treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and he brought Simeon out unto them. So they're afraid that Joseph's about to get them for the money from the first time. And what does the servant tell him? He says, give God the glory. I've got your money that you brought. Your God must have put it back in there. So they had an unconcealed fear, the strangeness of it all. They were farmers, rough men of the woods and wilds, royal opulence, unknown attentions. They misinterpreted what was happening because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time or we brought in, they whispered among themselves. Then with an added note of alarm, that he may seek occasion against us and take us for bondsmen. Nothing could have been further from the truth. It was a slander on the character of the unknown stranger who held their destinies in his hand. They simply didn't know him. Introduce an unsaved person into the house of God and you bring him into contact with another world, one wholly alien to his way of thought, ways of thought and manner of life. Unsaved people are aliens, strangers, foreigners there, and often as not, they misinterpret the gospel. I was... Uh, I haven't looked too deep into it. How many of you have heard of Jim Carrey? You ever heard of him? Yeah. I really started not liking Jim Carrey years ago when he did, a, uh, he did a song right after Charlton Heston had passed away. And it was called Cold Dead Hand. I didn't care for Jim Carrey at all. But the kids told me this week when I was talking to them that he had come to Christ or that he got saved. And uh, 
they showed me the video. I looked up a video, and I found one from a few years back, and he was painting a picture of Jesus Christ. And this wasn't the one where he was saved, because he's talking, and, and he's been on a journey, I guess, with all the things that have gone on in his life. But, you know, that hostility in him and all that. But he was painting a picture of Jesus Christ. He said, I, you know, I don't know if he's real or if he exists, but just the, the act of painting a picture and, and the goodness, you know. But then you watch a video from a few months ago, and he's actually witnessing to some guys in prison and talking to them about coming to Christ, about his life without Christ. And uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. But somebody that's not saved, and they look at Christians, there's a hostility toward the things of God. There's a hostility toward churches. They, they, they interpret church by their own life. They, they say, well, you know, churches are just about money. Preachers are just up there to grab money. And they're just up there for this and that. I tell you what, this is, this is not a good way to make money. I guess it is for some. But... Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, you can carry on with that and just people line up for it. But you start to tell, and that's the strange thing, is that they're willing to do, it's, it's kind of like when you look in the Old Testament, you look back at that story of Naaman, was it Naaman, who had the, the uh, leprosy, and he goes to see the prophet Elisha. He, he travels from the far country. His king sends him on the way, and he goes to the door of Elisha. Elisha doesn't even answer the door. He sends a servant to the door. He says, go and tell him to wash in the River Jordan seven times. And he walks away mad. <laughs> and he's complaining. He said, you know, the rivers back home are far cleaner. I'm, I came all of this way for you to tell me to bathe in a river seven times. Man, the rivers of Farper are a lot better than these nasty ones, right? This nasty river right here that you want me to go bathe in. And it was just his servant that had the sense. His servant said, well, if he'd have told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done that in order to be cured of this leprosy? And that's paraphrasing it down a lot. But, and he says, well, you know, you're right. He goes down to the river and he washes and cleans and comes out just like the prophet said, and he comes out clean and whole. But a lot of people are at the side of the river and they're looking at, you're saying, I just got to trust Jesus Christ and I get to go to heaven or I, you know, they, they don't understand. They have trouble understanding the fact that God would send his only begotten son to die on the cross for our sins. Well, isn't it just the same over here if I go to this other religion? I just pray. I just do this. I do. They'll go through all of this rather than believe in Jesus Christ. It's like the saying, some people will climb a tree to tell a lie rather than stand on the ground and tell the truth. And Jacob's sons have no idea what's going on. As Joseph feeds them, as Joseph is letting them into his house, all they can think of is what is going to happen to him, how he might be tricking them. Because that's the mindset that they live in. So the servant gives them comfort. He says, peace be to you, fear not your God and the father you and, and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then he brings their brother Simeon out to him. 
There was, thus there was a deliberate attempt by the steward to disarm their fears, develop their faith, and denote their future. The brethren were still as far from knowing Joseph as ever, but now they knew that it was grace at work, sovereign grace, grace in some way connected with the true and living God, the God they had ignored for so long in their worldly and wicked ways. And then there was an understandable formality. Genesis 43, 25 says, And they made ready the present against Joseph. And they made ready the present against Joseph came at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand to the, into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spake, is he yet alive? And they answered, Thy servant our father is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. So then we have recorded the understandable formality that marked Joseph's entrance. High noon arrived and the waiting brothers to no doubt eagerly questioning Simeon as to what had happened to him during their absence. They heard the heralds announce the, the approach of the unknown Lord of the land. They made him ready, their present, and bowed low before him, offered their gift, and waited for what would happen. You see the formality of it all. Of course, they did not know Joseph. Their dreadful crime still lay between them. Their deed of shame had long since been forgiven by Joseph, but they had no knowledge of that, nor were they yet ready in soul for the full revelation of his grace he longed to make as they came before him. When God deals with men, he's never in a hurry. I, I, it waited a long time. There's... Uh, you're, you're praying for someone and you're praying for them to come to Christ. You're praying for them to get closer to God. And it happens in God's timeline. He never skimps. In all, Joseph had acted with them as the Lord acts with a soul. God is never in a hurry, never skimps. We would put pressure on and seek to get people to make a hasty decision for Christ. But God allows the Holy Spirit to carry on through the work of conviction and to bring people to the point of genuine repentance. Then and only then, he brings the sinner to the point of decision. And the thing is, you never know who God's been working on when you witness to him. There may have been, you, you go to witness to somebody, there, you never know who's been praying for them. You never know what grandmother's been praying for them. You never know what's been going on in the background. These men were having a confrontation with Joseph and they didn't, they had no idea all that had gone in to setting the place for where they were about to meet him. Next we have the record of unrevealed feeling. Joseph lifted up his eyes, verse 29, and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. And Joseph made haste for his bowels being did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there, and he washed his face and went out and refrained himself. How like our Lord, he often yearns over his soul, longing to sweep aside all that stands between and overwhelm with his grace, but he refuses, he refuses to ravish him. He will only woo. Jesus weep for 
weeps for and searches for lost souls to bring them into the fold. It's like the story in Luke 15, 4, where, where Jesus says, what, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? When you're one of the ninety-nine, it seems odd that the shepherd would leave you to go after one lost sheep. But that's how much love God has for us. He, he'll, he'll, he seeks you out. There are people who are so far from God. I, I remember uh, years and years and years ago, you, you talk about people that get saved. Carla Faye Tucker. I just never forgot that. She was an axe murderer. She, in a, she was high. She was on drugs. She literally put an axe in someone's head. She was on death row in Texas. And while she was in Texas, and people say, well, these jailhouse conversions. Well, there are jailhouse conversions. There are people who are so insincere, they'll think they'll get special privileges just by coming to Christ. But there's other people that reach the bottom point, like that prodigal son in the pigsty. They reach that bottom point while they're sitting in jail, and they, the only place they can look is up. And Carla Faye Tucker sitting on death row, a man came and witnessed Witness to her, led her to Christ, and she got saved. And the big controversy at the time was, you know, she was asking, she was asking for leniency. She was asking to get off death row, and you can't blame her for that. But when the time came and it was turned down, and it was George Bush that turned it down, he was governor at the time. He turned her down. She was still willing to accept it. She knew she was going to be with her savior. But God had reached her. And I remember the attitude of so many Christians. It's all, oh, this is just a jailhouse conversion. This is just trying to get out of execution. Or this, you know, there were many people that were talking about in that, in that way. But this was her truly wanting to know God because she accepted it. She said, well, I know that I'll see Jesus when I get on the other side. And that's where you knew her heart was. She didn't turn against God then, kind of like that phone call I got years ago. Well, we can't help you. Well, you're supposed to help people. <laughs> you're a church. That's why you're calling me. You're calling me for the money. You're not calling me for the God that we know. You're calling me for your God, and he's not here. Jesus wept. Joseph wept, and Jesus wept. How easy, how easy it would have been for him that day, for Jesus, when he stood on the heights of Jerusalem with tears running down his cheeks, then and there to have summoned his legions from the sky. How easy it would have been to march into the city at the head of an angel host and overthrow Rome and set up a mighty earthly kingdom. It would have merely perpetrated things as they were without regenerating men. but it would have spoiled everything. How easy it would be for him today to reveal himself to men in flaming bursts of glory, but it would force the pace and dazzle and overall and compel and such is not his way in the present age of grace. Verse 43, 32. And they set on for him by himself and for them by themselves and for the Egyptians did eat with him 
by themselves because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination unto the Egyptians. Verse 33, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled at one another because he knew them by birth. And it's interesting, Jesus knows us by our birth. He knows us by the number of the hairs on our head. He knows us by the troubles in our lives. He knows us by the victories. He knows us by the joy, and he knows us by the pain. And as they sit there, they wonder, and they, uh, how did he know them? There was Reuben at the head of the table, and next to him Simeon, then Levi and Judah, followed in order by Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Isaacar and Zebulun, and there, last of all, the youngest, Benjamin. The brothers stared at one another. They were known. What did that man not know? The arrow of conviction penetrated deeper. We are known. He favored the least among them. Then came with unusual favor shown to Benjamin in verse 34. The food was brought in, and each was given his portion, bread enough to spare. But what was this? He came... Here came five men staggering beneath Benjamin's portion. He was five times that of Reuben or Judah or Gad. What a broad hint that was. The stranger had a preference for Benjamin. How blind they were not to put two and two together. He brings in a special portion. You know, God says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, and it's a matter of the heart when it comes to God. It's not a matter of your success. It's not a matter of what you can make happen or how talented you are. <clears throat> it's what you do with what God gives you. I heard a story years ago, and it was about a, a well, for lack of a better word, it was a retarded kid down in South America. And when he would ride the bus... He would, go, he would go to the same place every day, but he would ride the bus and he had his Bible and they'd make fun of it. And he says, uh, how, how do you know that there's a God? How can you believe in something you can't see? And he'd sit there and he'd say, because my Bible tells me so. Because my Bible tells me so. He had faith enough in God and he just, he trusted in God. And the faith of that young man is more powerful than the great works of some preacher that, whose heart is not after God, whose preacher has a mighty pulpit or who, who has a, a mighty ministry. And there's many ministries around this world, and I, I remember looking at ministries for us to support. And I remember uh, one of them, I'm not going to name it here, but one of the ministries, they had taken millions of dollars and built a new building. And this was a ministry that had a purpose for helping martyrs and for helping people. And, and the organization, when I looked at it, they had put millions of dollars into their office building. And I'm talking like a shopping mall. You remember how uh, they used to make shopping malls nice and with the glass? Remember the Galleria used to be nice before, you know, you get mugged just walking in the parking lot? They built this big, beautiful building, the landscaping and everything, millions of dollars. And then one of the, the sons of the founder wanted to help a group of people over here, and it's, well, it's not in the budget. They have this great work that everybody can see, but God will regard the least 
He'll regard that young man on the bus who just places his faith in Christ. He can't do much for him, but he's a testimony in his own way. And God looks at the least. Over in 1 Corinthians, he says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And why does he do that? That no flesh should glory in his presence. And elsewhere in the Bible, it says, not by, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. When we place our trust in the Lord on anything that we do, if we place our trust in ourselves, we're just doing it for ourselves. When that day comes when you're laying up treasures at his feet, and that's over on the next page, when it talks about the wood, hay, and stubble being laid out, those things, a lot of those things that people think are great things that they set out, that they've done. We had a mighty work. We had this big building. We had all of these ministries going around the world. And God, and they lay it out on the fire. It's just, poof. It'll be devoured. But someone else will say, well, I didn't do it. I, I led this person. I led this person. I led this person to the Lord. Or I, I did what you told me to, Lord. That's all that I have. That'll be the precious stones that are left behind. He knew them by birth. And when he laid out that food before Benjamin, he piles out all of that food before Benjamin. I think Joseph was over there with his fork in hand or whatever he was eating with. I think he was watching those brothers. Because he remembered years and years before. He remembered coming to them with just a, telling them about his dream that it happened. And he remembered the envy in their hearts. And he remembered what that envy led to. And Joseph was watching them. And he didn't see any of that envy today as he looked at them. And he was taking them right back to there in a sense by showing by showing preference for Benjamin over the oldest. He set them in order of their birth, but he showed all the preference to Benjamin. And he looked for their reaction to it. And I think he saw a change. <coughs> what was Joseph doing by giving Benjamin such a lion's share and doing it so openly and obviously, heaping slights upon the older men? Well, years before those same men had sold him because they were envious of him. Were they envious still? Would they eye Benjamin as they once had him? His dealings were bearing fruit, it seems, for there was not the slightest hint they showed resentment or jealousy at the preference shown to the youngest. And then there was unrestrained fellowship. Finally, the story tells of an unrestrained fellowship to prevail. Verse uh, 4334. And he took and sent messes unto them from before them. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. 
So they drank and were merry. And once they understood that there was grace involved, that there was, there was no subplot, there was no plan, there was no evil plan to take them. They had brought their little brother and he had met them and he took them at their word. They began to rejoice and be merry. Once you become comfortable, once you realize that God's not out to, he's not out to beat, as one of my favorite preachers would say, God's not standing by with a nail back to hit you over the head every time you mess up. But there's people that take advantage of that and they go down the road of grace and then they're, they're over in Romans chapter 6 like we looked at this morning. Does that mean that we should send more, that grace should more abound? God forbid, right? But once you understand that liberty you have in Christ, once you understand that God's not setting you up for failure, but he's showing you in his word, he's showing you how to be successful. He or not successful in your relationship with him. You understand that? It's not successful in this world. You'll have success. You'll have failure. But the most important success you can have in your life is your success in your relationship with the Lord. And once you understand that God's not waiting in the wings to punish you every time you step out of line, it's that fine line. It's that fine line where you begin serving God with your heart. When you begin to serve God with your heart, when you begin to let go of all those alternative all, all those ulterior motives that you have. And when you begin to just serve God with your heart and just begin to love Jesus. You know, I, <laughs> this is for free now because we haven't seen our grandkids. This, this was a week, this week I saw my, uh, one of my granddaughters for the first time in the flesh, you know. And just to see her rejoice at seeing me, uh, to see that little baby go, <laughs> it just moved my heart. And I, you know, you, you just don't want to let anything happen to her at all. And I, and I mean both of them, but I mean the oldest one, she's a little bit of <coughs> standoffish. And I love her too. <coughs> but imagine how much more God rejoices when you fellowship with him, when you look forward to dining with him, when you look forward to communion with him, how much more he rejoices and to help you and to to protect you, to be there for you, to fellowship with you, to increase your knowledge. But there's times, kind of like the other grant, you go off and do your own thing, still loves you. But it's like, don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. But here, once they had let go of the ulterior motives, once they had let go of their fear, they began to rejoice and be merry. Once you begin to let go of all that trying and let go of all that keeping the law, and you begin to follow with your heart, you begin to follow the Lord through love and not through fear. There's still a reverence and a fear of God. There's people that don't fear God, they don't reverence him, and they just, they, they think he's there for whatever they want. There's that balance. That's what I'm saying. There's a fine line. 
It's still fear. It's still reverence for God. It's still respect. But it's it's understanding. It's that fine line of walking with the Lord. All right, Miss Maxine.